This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. You're listening to the Knowledge at Wharton podcast. I'm Rachel Kipp, Associate Editorial Director of the Knowledge at Wharton website. We're here today with Wharton Finance Professor William Diamond, who's new to the faculty this year, and he's going to talk to us a little bit about some of his research. Will, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Can you talk to us, first of all, a little bit about what are some of your areas of expertise or research focuses? So the broad area I'm interested in is financial intermediation, studying banks or other financial institutions and the role they play in the economy. And I guess what got me interested in this was the crisis in 2008 happened when I was getting involved in economics and trying to understand first crises in financial regulation related to them, but then more broadly how they relate to the rest of the economy, too. Now, you had a recent paper, it's about um, the role of intermediaries in publicly traded securities markets. Can you talk to us a little bit about that paper and some of the key takeaways? Sure. So if we look at older models of what something like a bank would do, people often emphasize the expertise they have or the information they have when making loans. So if a bank makes a loan to a company, they're going to spend some time monitoring that company, learning something about how creditworthy it is. And for a lot of the banking system, this makes a lot of sense. But if you look particularly at the modern U.S. banking system or in other highly developed countries with deep financial markets, you see a lot of publicly traded assets on these balance sheets, mortgage-backed securities, government debt, things which are not so difficult to sell. And the models we have of why banks exist in the first place are somewhat in tension with this idea. So one of the goals I had in this paper was to understand How could it be the case when I can log on to my brokerage account and buy exactly the same asset that these banks are holding, but still, nevertheless, they play some important role in the economy? Now, what would be some practical implications for this research? How can a business practitioner take take this and use it in real life? So if a business practitioner wanted to use it, um, my model has some implications for how to think about a bank's risk management policy. And the real goal of a bank in this paper is they create safe assets. So when you put your money in the bank and a deposit, you want to know it's there. If you're going to make a transaction, you swipe your card, you want to be sure that that money's there. If you had something like a risky stock portfolio and you went to pay at the store with this, maybe the stock market crashed in the meantime. So the goal of a bank is to have these very, very safe deposits. And then what a bank needs to do then is invest in assets that ensure that these deposits actually are safe. And this is the theory I have of how a bank chooses its portfolio. They invest in mortgages. They make loans to companies. Everything on the asset side almost is debt of various sorts, whereas they could very well play the stock market. Why don't we see banks investing in speculative tech startups? And the real purpose of this is to make sure that these deposits are very safe in the first place. So if banks create lots of safe deposits, that's a really cheap way of funding themselves. So... You put your money in the bank not because it's a really high rate of return, but because you need it to make transactions. From the banker's perspective, if they can satisfy your needs for a stable, safe medium of exchange, they can get really attractive rates of funding. So they create something very safe. and In order to do that, they have to invest in the lowest risk asset portfolio they possibly can. So this would tell a banker, how do you think about the cost of investing in different assets? Maybe if you invest in the stock market, this is going to be somewhat in tension with the the basic role that a bank is playing in the first place. Now, you also point out in the paper that 
the paper points to how a growing demand for safe assets may have contributed to the subprime boom. That's right. So how are there implications there then for regulators who would yeah. obviously want to do things to make sure That's that doesn't right. happen again? Yeah, the, the main practical implication of the paper is more on the regulatory side that first I build a model of why do banks exist, assuming the private sector is doing their job correctly, and then using this as a framework for thinking about if the government does various kinds of policies, regulating banks' risk-taking or quantitative easing, which was something the Fed did recently. Uh, it's a way of thinking about the whole financial system, both banks' balance sheets and how much the non-financial sector borrows, how they all adjust to this. In the context of the subprime boom, effectively what a lot of people in macroeconomics have argued is the rise of China, which is a country which is growing very fast but has a weak financial system, led them to just increase the global demand for safe assets in general. So if you look at U.S. government debt, huge portions of that were bought by the Chinese central bank throughout the 2000s as they were growing because they couldn't create something as safe as U.S. government debt themselves with their poor financial system. From our perspective in the U.S., what this means is safe borrowing rates were pushed down. And you can see that interest rates have been falling in this period. Um, and then in the context of my model, this means that sort of the bank's business model of creating safe assets has now just become a whole lot more lucrative. If you can borrow very cheaply by creating something very safe like a deposit, you're going to do more of that than when the price of safety was lower. So the Chinese bid up the price of safety that's an increase in demand. And to shift along the supply curve, we now have a larger and riskier financial sector providing these safe assets. And why this connects to the subprime boom is, as I said before, what a bank's goal here is they want to create something safe. And to do that, they choose a portfolio that's as low risk as possible. If they're going to expand their portfolio and they're investing in something low risk, mechanically, they must be buying riskier assets than they did before. So before they would make loans to only very creditworthy households, once they've exhausted that market, you have to move into the subprime sector or just give everybody larger loans and collectively people will be riskier then too. Now, what's next for this research? What are you studying now? So in this research agenda, I think the next step is two different things. One is understanding where this demand for money comes from in the first place. That if people need something safe to perform transactions, what exactly is the problem that a safe asset solves when people go to the store and buy something? And I'm working on one paper where first I have a model of transaction frictions, which money solves, and then I'm trying to attach to it something related to my original paper, which is how does a bank then create assets which meet this demand for money and putting that together in a deeper framework. And this is needed if you want to think about assets which are more or less money-like and trying to think about how safe does an asset need to be in order to be useful for making an exchange. Because if you put your money in a savings account, that's effectively riskless. The government backs that up too. If you put it in a money market fund, that's not backed by the government, but still you can write checks on it. So there's some intermediate degree of riskiness where things can still be somewhat like money. And then also a second related thing I'm working on is thinking about how other financial institutions could be very similar. That a bank creates deposits and it invests in a portfolio of very low-risk assets like mortgages in order to create a lot of deposits. But also you can think about insurance companies doing something quite similar. So a life insurance company will promise sometime when a person dies in the next 30, 50 years or so, a fixed quantity of money will be paid out, $1 million, half a million dollars. 
And that you can think of as a very long-dated safe asset, where the creditworthiness of this insurance company means that you trust that at some time in the far future, the money is going to be there when your family is in need. And a life insurance company has a very similar risk management problem to a bank, that they need to hold an asset portfolio that makes those promises credible. So I'm working on a second paper which tries to compare what sorts of assets should a bank hold, what sorts of assets should an insurance company hold, and can we compare what we see in the data about what their investments look like and try to square that with a theory of the fundamental problems that they solved in the first place. Well, thanks so much for being with us today. Of course. You can find all of Knowledge of Wharton's podcasts on the Knowledge of Wharton website. We're at knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. You can also find us by subscribing to us on iTunes. And if you like what you hear, please give us a review. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.